Welcome everybody to the Help for Hip Dysplasia podcast. We have with us today, Linda Black, who is the head of Hip Dysplasia Strategies on Instagram. Or if you follow on Facebook, we have a group for Adult Hip Dysplasia Rehab Strategies. Thank you so much, Linda, for being here with us today. Thank you. It's great to <laughs> finally meet, meet you and um, kind of catch up where we are in this process. I know we've had uh, quite a few chats over Instagram and um, I, I always get such a buzz when I see some of my posts up on your, on your page. It's a real uplifting moment for me. So um, it's lovely to be able to finally chat to you and uh, get to know you a little bit better. Oh, uh, thank you. <laughs> so um, let's just hear a little bit about your story, if you don't mind. I think um, your diagnosis started a little bit later on in life, I believe. Was it age 46 that you got your diagnosis? So my initial diagnosis that I had bilateral hip dysplasia was at 46 in 2012. It was actually in March of 2012. And I had significant uh, pain two years prior to that. And I had some mysterious things where once I broke a foot walking, my foot turned purple. It was excruciating. I had ongoing SI joint dysfunction, pain. But I didn't have a label for any of that. It was just all mysterious. And then um, I was just kind of managing myself by talking to physical therapists that were in my family. And they would give me some tricks and tips about how to manage it and get stronger. But it was really when I could not sleep anymore and the nerve pain was coming at night, couldn't fall asleep. It was really affecting my overall function. So I went to a physical therapist who, who said, yes, I think you have something really wrong, but I can't say what it is. Um, she was not in a position to, but she said, if the pain comes back or it becomes significant, go see a hip surgeon. So I went to see this hip surgeon in March and he took two x-rays, one of the left, one of the right, and the right hip was subluxed. And he asked me, how long have you been in pain? And I said, forever. And he said, no, really? And I said, forever. And I laughed because I always laugh about everything. And he goes, oh, were you hip? Were you harnessed or were you cast? And I said, no. I said, I actually crawled out of my crib at nine months. There was no inkling that there was anything wrong with me because I was so active and I was athletic. Mm. So anyway, you know, I go down the, the road of hip injection and MRI, and they found out that the right hip is just obliterated. It's cysts, it's torn in two places. I have a tendon tear, uh, it's uh, slightly dislocated, so he was warning me, and yet I was still doing sports and building sets and going to volleyball wow. practices, and I, I actually played golf <laughs> all the way up till <laughs> Two months before I had the hip replacement, because I just didn't know any better. I was so high on pain threshold, being able to, to handle it, that it was abnormal. It was just really in a place that was unhealthy, but didn't know it. I didn't know how unhealthy it was until I got to here, eight years later, nine years later. So yes, that was where I was diagnosed, but I had pain my whole life. Um, at 12, I went to a doctor with knee pain after I started volleyball, and he said it was growing pains. And then I started, you know, puberty, and I had horrendous periods. 
uh, menstrual cycle pain. And then I had pain in my hips and my knees when I started to play tennis. So I abandoned that. And I really got into cycling. And cycling saved me. So, yes. so that's where I got all the way through my 20s, my 30s having children, and into my 40s. And that's when the bottom fell out, literally. <laughs> okay, so let's, let's dive into that a little bit more. When you say that, what do you mean? The, the, the bottom fell out? Well, yeah. <laughs> it, it felt like as soon as they made that cut, I came out of surgery for the, the hip replacement. So I agreed to have the hip replacement uh, in the fall of, of that year because my mother was actually passing away. She had leukemia from a blood mm -hmm. disorder. Mm -hmm. And she was urging me to get the hip replacement. And I said, I assure you I will get it. But unfortunately, she never saw me get the hip replacement. But I think it was a good thing. Um, when I came out of surgery, I had this incredible spasming issue and none of the medicine was helping. And I was, you know, in the bed with tendon tear repair and I couldn't put any weight on it. So I was flat on my back and the surgeon was in surgery still with another patient and they couldn't get my pain under control. And I think at that point, things changed, shifted in my brain, how I received pain. Um, and I did okay when I got home, they got it under control, but they put me on opiates and, um, I didn't have a problem with them cause they made me sick. So I didn't take that many of them. Hmm. Um, but once I was able to get up on the walker and get moving, things improved. I didn't have any more of those spasms, but after I got off of that walker, my back was killing me. And they thought, well, you were kind of tipped forward. You know, all the positional things that a physical therapist or a physio thinks about. And I said, well, the pain was there present. It was really present there before the sur hip surgery. And so the hip surgeon s sent me to the spine surgeon. And they did an MRI and they did some back injections and they found out I had stenosis. And I had to wait six months to attend to it because my hemocrit level, I had lost a lot of blood with that surgery. So my hemocrit level had tanked. But in retrospect, what I know now is that I was having this autonomic stuff. Um, I was, after kind of flashing forward, I had, I had the second hip, I had the spine surgery six months later and I was okay for about a year about six, eight months. And then the pain started in the left hip and I could not get that pain under control. And it really was not in visual imaging. It was not that damaged. So was what I, second, sorry, was the second hip, the one that was um, constantly subluxed or was that, was that the um, other? The right one was the one that was constantly subluxed. And because I was constantly loading on that left hip because of the right. And then I had some shifts after the spinal surgery. It was just a decompression. There was no fusion. It was just a decompression. Mm -hmm. um, but we found that the discs were, were torn and um, they, there was, they, were, they were degenerating. So I was, you know, just fighting so much. And the PTs were so great. Uh, they listened to me through my tears, through my overdoing it, thinking that the more exercise I do, the better. <laughs> and they had to tamp me down and they would give me little pep talks and, you know, um, got into a real psychological, you know, avenue about this journey. You know, it wasn't just about the surgery. It just, you know, we started pulling in a lot of psychology, um, a lot of things, how the body works, your age, 
the age came into question. Was I premenopausal? Were these premenopausal chronic pain issues? So, you know, these are pre-existing, these are, these are existing things that doctors and practitioners think about when a patient has this lingering pain and it shouldn't be there. You know, the saying, well, you shouldn't be in this much pain. And I know there are many other people that have heard this throughout this journey. So anyway, going on, I went back to the hip surgeon. I went back to the hip surgeon. I went back between the spine surgeon and the hip surgeon. Which do you do first, the back or the hip? And the spine surgeon said, I'm not going to do anything more with the back until the hip is fixed. So I went back, <laughs> long story. And we decided, because I was becoming really disabled, I said, listen, how long, I said, how long is this next hip going to last? He said, we have 30 years on this one. And I said, well, what the heck are we waiting for? I said, I'm missing life. I'm missing being able to be the best parent I can be. I'm losing my career. I'm just losing everything. And I said, I have to get this hip fixed so that I can figure out if it is my back. So I did get the hip fixed and things got improved about 50%, but I still could not walk. I could not walk without pain. And I went through gait training, retraining and everything. I just continued on. And this went on for three years until I went through more injections in my spine. And then in the fall of 2018, I'm sorry, yeah, 2017, sorry. I ended up with these horrendous spasms that went 24-7. Uh, I couldn't sleep. It went on for, I think, six weeks. And then I had to go into emergency surgery. And when they opened me up, they found that the nerve, the L5 nerve, was being crushed, and it was hooked by a bone spur. Oh, so I had, some, I had some abnormal healing, and I had a lot of adhesions and poor healing internally, even though things look fantastic on the imaging and on the outside. So I was validated because the whole time I was going through PT, I, I would raise my right hand up and I say, I feel hooked. I feel hooked. I can't get extension. And they would just kind of, you know, smile. So <laughs> I learned unbelievable body awareness after that. So now I've kind of sifted through all that. And that's where the strategies came through because I learned how important body awareness is, but not to get so mired into the body awareness that it's disabling you know kind of process it do something with it don't just have it do something with it tell your practitioner this is what you're feeling this is where i'm tight this is where i'm having spasms and because i was able to give the physical therapist this information they were able to tweak things take things out tell me to stop doing that don't walk this far don't do this do this you know it was just very much it was it was, I dedicated myself after that spinal fusion. I had a two-level spinal fusion. I dedicated myself to um, just, just healing. And so I professionally, I finished up all my books and illustration for, for the year of 2018 or 2017 and just dedicated the last year and a half to that. And then the last piece of the puzzle was that I was diagnosed with dysautonomia after I had... Um, immense dizziness and these um, strange symptoms. My hands were turning purple. Sometimes they'd be all white. Then I had this nummy, nervy feeling throughout my body. And uh, 
that was kind of a uh, disappointing because even the neurologist and the spine surgeon are like, well, I don't know what you do about that. So I was like, oh boy, here we go again. So here I have this pile high of diagnoses. <laughs> I just was laughing. This was like, oh my God, I never went to a doctor until 46 and now what? <laughs> so that's, that's in a short, but I find immense help from myself, learning a lot about how the body works, muscles that play in, how to deal with them, what to do if you're, you know, if you're spasming, what type of medicines you want to avoid, which ones work well. Um, talk to a lot of pain management doctors. And so, and then the last one, as I worked with a physical therapist doing um, dry needling with E-STEM on my SI joint, my iliacus and around the glute system. And that really unlocked, started to unlock things. And I was able to get back to walking this year. I went to, I actually went to London <laughs> to see my daughter. <laughs> yeah, so I heard that you said um, that you were coming back earlier this year. So you came back um, and then you're now back over um, in the States, I believe. Yeah, so in April, my daughter was studying in London and um, I really wanted to see her, but I was really worried about whether I was going to be able to handle it. And so I booked a ticket and I also booked an injection into my lower spine because the spasms came back and January and they just they did some imaging to make sure the prosthesis wasn't breaking in my spine and what they found was that the stenosis has grown back into the spinal fusion and that there's some shifting above the fusion but alas I'm beating it I'm managing it so I'm, I feel pretty good I don't have as much pain as I did you know three two three years ago so I mean that's that's a that's a massive history, Linda. There's a lot of things that you. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh my goodness, no! It's it's amazing to hear your hear your story, and there's there's a lot that you've been through, and a lot of different interventions. You've dealt with a lot of different people and different pain management strategies, and like you said, I think something that can be taken away from what you've said is how much you've learned about your own body, and the confidence of having those different experiences, learning what pain is right and wrong for you and knowing and having the confidence to stand up and say, this isn't right. I can cope with pain on a day-to-day -day basis. I've been doing it most of my life, but now something isn't right and I need something to be done and taken seriously. And I think with a lot of people that I've spoken to, I, I think chronic pain is something that we all deal with and seem to manage with really well but having the confidence to just say enough is enough and now something needs to be done I, it's is such a huge step and it sounds like you really learned a lot about yourself and had the confidence to to say those things i think and i had to admit that i had i did have some issues within my own personality and um you know it would make me angry when i would go to appointments and the and the hip surgeon would say well you're kind of a perfectionist and i'd say true but this is something more than to that this is a functional thing i just there's something really wrong i can't put my finger on it i know you can't see it and to the and not to criticize them imaging is not a perfect science you cannot see everything. And I know that through the sites that we run, that there have been numerous stories that they open the hip up, 
or they hover the backup of a, of a patient with hip dysplasia and they say, oh, that was a lot worse than it looked. Because I think the patient develops a high pain thresh, you know, that high pain intolerance just because of they're either born with it or it develops and becomes more critical over time. So I think we have to, as practitioners, really start to learn to how to listen to a patient and guide them through different types of pain. And that's what I've learned. There's muscular pain, there's nerve pain, there's spasm pain, there's emotional pain. Uh, so yes, pain is a very complex topic um, and it's not well understood. Um, but I think with time, I'm very confident that we're gonna gain more control over this and we're going to help patients deal with this this issue and that's something that i know that you're very passionate about having set up the groups that you have on social media and uh, the power of social media and the internet now allows us to communicate with a whole world of people who are going through the same thing when i know many of us when we've been going through it originally um but barely knew of one other person that might have had a similar situation and now you know we see on on your group for example on Facebook you know there's there's thousands of people that we can reach and you know I just wonder if you wouldn't mind telling people a little bit about where your group first started where you first came up with the idea and how it how it progressed well I was feeling really lonely and then I stumbled upon um, the International Hip Dysplasia Institute's site hipdysplasia.org Mm -hmm. And in that, um, in that site, there were our, hip, our patient stories. And I actually found a woman in Florida who was one of the first hip, hip, replacement, um, hip replacement recipients in the 80s. Uh, she was born with it, was casted, and on and on. But also, I shared my story on that site. And a young girl from um, London had called me or contacted me because um, she saw my feed also on the adult hip dysplasia site Facebook group, the closed group. And we became pen pals essentially. And we got each, each other through a lot of dark days. She was recovering from a PAO that did not heal well. It had a non-union. She had hypermobility issues. I, I had that same issue. Um, and so we would have these very scientific kind of um, conversations about about the condition not just about the pain but what can we do to beat this this condition post-surgically and pre-surgically so i think i had known her about a year and i said what do you think if i started an adult hip dysplasia strategy site she said well i think you should do it and i said well i'm really nervous because i'm not a professional i don't have any medical credentials <laughs> i'm just a patient so when I started the site, I had to really focus on making sure that it wasn't just talking about my pain and my story. I really wanted to get other people involved so that it became a really good platform of things they might be struggling with. And maybe we could help them either guide them in the right direction with the right you know, person that we could um, steer them to or possibility of the other things to look at. Um, you know, other dysfunctions that happen with us. SI joint dysfunction is a huge topic on our site. Um, and then that was a private, that was actually a private forum. So I took, this year I really went out on a limb because I was really nervous about 
making my story public, really public, because I had this, you know, career. And I, I was really nervous about exposing this part of my life. And um, I kind of cover it up with humor. I just, that's just how I've coped with a lot of things. But in any case, I brought it on to Instagram. And I think we have about 250 followers now and it's growing every day. And it's wonderful because now we're having people like you, um, exercise professionals are posting. And I do more and more just posting other people's posts. So I'm copying links and I'm putting them in there because I think that it's like planting seeds. You know, sometimes the seeds don't sprout, but sometimes they really take hold. And just wonderful things can happen from those, those little seedlings. And that's where social media comes in and it's wonderful. This is a, it's, you know, it's helping patients. We're saving patients' lives. You know, there's a lot of people that deal with, you know, severe depression from this condition. And um, the implications are not known to the surgeons. Uh, they just don't understand it. The insurance doesn't under, understand it. So that's my hope is that we really do get a specific diagnosis and understanding for hip dysplasia from so many aspects so that the patient can be taken care of medically and covered. So I guess that's what drives my, you know, drives me to continue this, this uh, quest. Absolutely. Um, and like I said, you've got, you've got a group on Instagram, hip, hip dysplasia strategies on Instagram and adult hip dysplasia rehab strategies on Facebook. So um, anyone that's listening, that's looking for a little bit more support, please go and check out those pages um, and see the wonderful things that Linda's being able to to put up there and and share with the world um, and if you are a dog lover everyone knows now that i am such a dog lover she has the cutest puppy that is helping her with some of her videos yeah well louis louis was preceded by uh he he actually is our louis is our puppy and he's our second pup our first pup was huey and huey came into my picture in 2016 um, after I had my hip replacement and he was a rescue and he was a Yorkie poo, but he was a wonderful pup, but we lost him this summer. And I never had a dog in my life until that. And I found out how valuable pets can be from so many things, but I think it's funny because they always join me in exercise. And, um, <laughs> so he's, he's a full five pounds, I think now, <laughs> but I don't think he's going to get much bigger, but, um, if I can just keep them from biting me while we exercise, that's our goal. I'll have to do some and, training. Yeah, and the stretchy bands that um, he likes to fling around. Yes, any plastic or rubber, he loves to spin around, stretch and bite. Hopefully he doesn't swallow it. Um, but in any, any case, I, you know, I do have my other life, which as an illustrator. And so I'm happy to say that I'm back to work and I'm, you know, I'm having to pace myself a little differently than I did 30 years prior with this career. But how, um, how long, if you don't mind me asking, um, did it take you away from your career, the hip dysplasia and your back issues? How long? I think it was a slow kind of a, it ate at me for the last five years. So I really had difficulty writing. So I was a children's book writer. And because my brain was so muddled with the chronic pain, I just could not formulate ideas. Um, but once I was able to take give myself a chance to kind of give, take myself out of it, of that tract of pushing through on that career, 
I took that full year off. I would say it was about a five-year low, but I did produce two children's books right after my second hip replacement with that spine, and it was excruciating. And it was really an emotional thing. I had just bottomed out that whole topic of lose, you know, bottoming out. Mm. It was my hips. It was my back. It was my emotional spirit. It was my physical spirit. And so, yeah, so I, you know, my daughter said, well, join Instagram. So that's what I did. And um, that was wonderful because it allowed me to experiment and I'm actually transforming my style. So it's much looser. So I'm not spending a ton of time at the board sitting. So there are always good things that come out of things. Absolutely. <laughs> As an art director said, you're having a revolution. I said, yes, it's called two hips and a back. <laughs> I'm really pleased to hear that you're back into working again and um, that your illustration work is, uh, is, is doing so well again. Um, if uh, anybody wants to go and check out Linda's illustration page, it's at L. Blexter. Is that, is that right? Yep, L. Blexter. Perfect. And, and they can also go to my website, which is www.lindableck.com. Amazing. So yeah, anyone that wants to have a look at that, please go ahead and check it out. Um, you might have seen snippets of her work on her Instagram page and some of the hip dysplasia work that you put up. Um, you definitely use some of your illustrations to use that. So uh, there's some sneak peeks on the Instagram page as well for you. Um, so we... Sorry, carry on. Oh, nope. I think it was a little... <laughs> I'm listening. <laughs> so we had a bit of a chat earlier about the fact that this has been quite an emotionally challenging journey for you um there's been a lot of chronic pain there's been a lot of different interventions that you've been through and like you said within that five-year period um it took you quite a long time to come out of that and be able to get back to the to the state that you're in now um but we've previously mentioned that there might have been a few hurtful things that have been said to you along the way and you know it's a bit more of an emotional subject I wondered if you wouldn't mind expanding on that a little bit for us. Well I think you know when you go through these things you're you're going along and you're thinking I have pain in my hips or I have pain in my back and then all of a sudden you get this diagnosis and I remember getting the diagnosis and I didn't cry initially I was just dumbfounded. I was like, how could this be? I mean, I've gone my whole life being told it was growing pains, overactivity, um, you know, on and on. And then to be told within a f like less than five minutes, you need two hip replacements and you may have back problems. And I, I was, I remember getting into the car because my husband was away. He was out of town and I got on the phone and I started to cry. And I'm not a big crier, but I was just kind of overwhelmed. It was, you know, and then I just had to ante up the strength because I was still, my mother was still living and I had these two children at home. So I had to muster up that strength to continue to be this mother and this somehow be the volunteer at the schools somehow um, that I was. But I had to let, learn how to let go of certain things. I had to let go of relationships that, that were too hard. Um, I had to let go of 
you know, letting everything bother me, um, not achieving what I thought I could achieve. Uh, and then as a patient, I think you have these expectations that I'm going to get this hip and things are going to be fine because so many people would tell you, well, I got a hip and I was back to golf or this, but they didn't have hip dysplasia or they didn't have these other things that I didn't know that I was contending with, with the POTS, the postural orthostatic tachycardia and the dysautonomic issues. And once I was able to put all those puzzle pieces together, it was an aha moment that everything in my life kind of made sense. Like, oh, that's why I could never stand still or stand up too long in grade school. That's why my attention span was muddled because part of dysautonomic and POTS is that you have a lot of brain fog. But by the grace of God, I went to a Catholic school and a nun actually noticed that I was struggling. I was a good student, but she, she actually put me in a room, a quiet room where I could study. And that was my seventh and eighth grade years. And, you know, I, I think I learned that past relationships, how special they were in retrospect. So I really went into this profound, deep feeling for people that had been good to me. And I learned a lot about goodness and forgiveness and forgiving myself. So it's, it's rather deep. And it's hard to explain in, you know, a five-minute, you know, snippet. But um, I think that's when you go through something like this, you know, in some ways it's a blessing because it makes things clear and um, you devote more time to the things that are most important. It's kind of like the book, The Seven Habits of Successful People. You start mm -hmm. sifting it out and prioritizing and you know that you learn that if you don't take care of yourself, you're no good to anyone. So you have to learn how to take care of yourself first. And that was the thing that I really had to learn. Instead of giving to so many people, first, I had to be a little bit more self-careish. I don't call it selfish. I call it self-careish. So because it takes off that stigma of being selfish. I don't like the word selfish. Um, yeah when it comes to things like this. So and I just made so many friends. I've made so many wonderful friends across the globe, which is just uh, unbelievable. So when you're trapped at home, you still feel like you have these friends that understand you. So you feel that connection and you feel like you've come out as a stronger person for the journey that you've been through? Oh, I think I'm much stronger than I ever was. I was physically strong, but now I'm mentally and physically tough, I think. There are days, yes, this condition can really get to you. But I know there's other people that are really struggling far more than I am with so many other things. And, you know, I just kind of try to keep that in perspective. Um, I do get frustrated that I can't do the things that I used to, but well, I'm gonna be 55 this year, so <laughs> I have to keep things in perspective. <laughs> So, and I never really like to run anyway, so. <laughs> <laughs> and so that brings us back to the cycling. You mentioned that um, cycling has always sort of been your savior. Is that something that you do quite regularly now? So cycling was one of the things that I really struggled with. I keep trying. I did go out and I rode, I think I rode 15 miles this weekend. Oh, wow. Uh, 
And I did have, my hips locked up that evening. We went out for a little walk and my hip locked up, you know, how the flexor tightens down spasms and you kind of go forward and you can't move. But I'm learning how to move through those spasms so that I'm training my brain not to be so alarmed so that they don't continue. So I'm having, I'm doing a lot of brain retraining. Um, I will quickly do a sidestep or a back step, and that will give my brain and my body a cue that there's a way out of it. It's a reset button, isn't it? You learn these movement patterns, you learn what the pain means, what the spasms mean. And with practice, and it does take time and learning, like you said. Oh, immense. Watching. Immense but, practice. <laughs> absolutely. You just, yeah. you, you learn how your body works, you learn how to manage it. And, you know, if you've got, you know, people like yourself that are putting all these different tips and tricks out, you know, that might be helpful to somebody else and um, that might be going through something similar. And, um, you know, the more information like that, that we can share, the, the more we might reach that one person that has a situation they've struggled with and they've got no way out, but they might see something on your site that, it gives them an idea and that really makes a difference to their life and that's what that's what i love about your page all the different strategies and all the different methods that you that you bring up as well as the things that work for you personally i love your routines that you do with your time lapses that you show people you know your morning routines and and the different you know exercises that you do um i think that's really useful for people to see lots of different methods yeah, and I, I do want to say that I, it's not like I just go out and do these 15-mile bike rides. Um, that was a hurdle to get past um, that something drastically could go wrong if I push myself, because I haven't been doing that. And I specifically was pushing myself into about, you know, those boundaries. But I did have an injection about four weeks, ago, three to four weeks ago into my spine. So I do, period, I do work very closely with the pain management specialist. So I just want to preface that because I do deal with the spine thing still, but I have to, I have, it's a dance. You know, when do you go back and ask, okay, something's wrong. I had four or five, four weeks of spat, significant spasming and nerve pain that came back at night. So I knew I had to get, calm that nerve down. And, you know, that's the thing that you have to learn if you're going to have these continued hurdles and these problems, not everybody does, but you know, I know there are some that have this issue and I just don't want them to give up hope. You know, um, every time I get an injection, I try to put a little bit more functional strength in there because I hit a wall and then I can't get that functional strength. And then I know I have to go back a little bit and start all over. So there's a lot about doubling back on yourself and not being defeated like oh i was there and now i'm not there so that's that mental you know practice that you learn um and i think i've learned that there's a lot of people with this condition that are quite creative innately a lot of them paint draw sing and so i think there that's part of the i think that's part of the puzzle is that many people learn how to be creative because they have to be creative in order to move forward so I would encourage people if they have any creativity and even if they don't have, think they have creativity to maybe pick up something like that. Maybe start drawing, maybe take a little class, something outside of the dysplasia. You know, give yourself focus away from the condition. Uh, maybe you're a writer, maybe start writing. So, and it doesn't necessarily have to be writing about your journey, but maybe a creative story um, or maybe a character that's, 
this disabled. You know, there's so many things that you can take out of this condition that could send you in a different direction. I know that's, you know, I'm, I, it's hard to say, it's very hard to say that, but um, I just think it's been one of the strategies that's helped me is that my, my artistic creativity has really helped me a lot. And just, I, you're not the first person to say that we've had um, a few people come on and say that their creativity has really been their savior. And I, I think you're exactly right. Finding an outlet and a way to manage effectively. It sounds like that was yours. Um, there was a lady that we had a chat to, um, mermaid.hips um, on Instagram, was using the journaling and she was sort of creating really sort of amazing pictures um, within her journaling. And that was a really creative outlet for her. So it's a, you know great to hear you saying something similar. And you know the more people that hear that there are options like that to help you manage, um, yeah, maybe more big people will give that a go um, when they might not have done before. So thank you so much for sharing that. Sure. <laughs> so, it was really a pleasure to talk to you and I really enjoyed seeing your videos. Um, I really appreciate that you're sharing more and more because I think that has such a value. Somebody who has a background of the understanding of anatomy and kinesiology um, can understand what hip dysplasia patients are experiencing and giving them those, you know, extra tips. So I thank you and the others that are on that site to keep, and I encourage you to keep posting. Thank you. I absolutely will. Um, and perhaps um, when we, uh, when we finish recording today, maybe we'll have a little list of some of the more frequent things that you get asked about. And um, maybe I can start putting together some information or some guidance around that to, to send across to you for your for your groups and um, to share some of that information so um, perhaps we can work together to to share and solve um, as much as we possibly can that would be fantastic <laughs> fantastic all right so i thank you so much linda black for coming on to speak to us today um, and as with everybody i would love to keep in touch with you um, please follow on the instagram and facebook sites that we've already talked about um, and please keep sending in your questions and sharing and supporting everybody else in this community. So thank you very much. Join us again next week. Thank you.